0: Hello, and welcome to Bourbon and Tea. I'm Ryan Woltz, and we are a podcast looking at having conversations over science and trying to break it down. Um, Also, one of the things that we like to do is we like to pour a drink of our favorite drink uh, in order to have a good conversation. So today, I have a very exciting guest um, working on some new technology of peptide drugs. Uh, he is a graduate student at Rutgers University. Uh, say hello, Douglas Pike.
1: Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna use first name basis. So hey, Doug. Um, so what type of drinks do you like to have during a nice little conversation?
1: Uh, I've become a big fan of espresso, um, and I have probably too many a day and uh, and I roast uh, my own coffee that I've been doing uh, with they started with a fellow graduate student uh, years ago uh, and I still do it um, and I like it because you can buy uh, green beans fairly cheaply and you can roast them however whatever darkness you like and I found that the more recently you've roasted the beans the better the coffee is essentially that that's the key the key thing so i drink a lot of espresso
0: (laughs) do you so uh do you like the lighter or a darker roast for your espresso
1: i actually prefer what is called vienna roast which is lighter than a french roast uh, but darker than like a medium roast okay
0: so medium dark i guess yeah yeah. Yeah. I've been drinking a lot of, uh, espresso. I got my little cappuccino machine over here from, uh, some California stuff. Cause you're on the East coast, um, place called temple and they have a really, really nice, uh, kind of, I've been getting into the more like lighter fruitier, um, roasts and stuff like that. So I kind of yeah. use those for my cappuccinos in the morning. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So okay, now that we got our drinks settled, the reason I asked Doug here today was because I wanted to talk about um, some different peptide designs that he's doing specifically for coronavirus. But what's really interesting about this is this is a brand new cutting edge technology that we could be using for a multitude of different diseases and and potentially viruses that could be rapidly modified um, as they're needed. so Doug, why don't you kind of give us a little bit of an overlay of what you've been doing recently?
1: Sure. Um, so it all started uh, when the first lockdown occurred earlier this year. Um, the project and this technology has been developing in our lab and many other labs uh, that work on protein design um, over, over a long number of years, decades in some cases. Um, but in our lab, but you know, we have a certain set of tools that we use and, and code that we develop um, and then experiments that we do to test the uh, designs. And um, so during the last lockdown, um, me and a few people in the lab, we ran uh, a bunch of, uh, we used a bunch of computer time to calculate what peptide sequence would be stable in a human uh, physiology, stable in human physiology, acting as an inhibitor of the coronavirus. Um, So what we did was we designed a peptide that can bind, partner up with the part of the coronavirus that attaches to the human cell. So if we can block that site with a peptide we design, then we can potentially inhibit the coronavirus from ever entering a cell in the human if a corona, and if coronavirus doesn 't enter the cell, then it can 't reproduce itself, and if it can 't reproduce itself, it basically ceases to exist in that local place in that per human, and then likewise that human can 't spread the virus
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well that's that's super interesting. Um, so I think uh, maybe maybe we can uh, kind of go back real quick. Um, so when you talk about protein designing, what you're talking about is um, kind of creating something new that doesn't exist currently. Correct, mm-hmm. um, and. And so you're taking some sort of, so proteins are made of different sequences. Like, you know, there's 20 different building blocks, essentially there's more, but we'll leave at 20. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're you're taking these building blocks and you are rearranging them in different ways. Yes. Um, and that's what your design is, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we're calculating, we're doing computer simulations and calculations to determine what sequence of those building blocks might be most effective at inhibiting the infection due to coronavirus. And as you mentioned, this methodology could apply to a whole host of um, viruses as well as other, um, other diseases that where, where one could uh, bind a new protein to an existing protein as proteins are essentially the machines of life, they do all the work in living organisms. So if you can stop a protein from doing its job and that protein's job is to help another organism, then you know, you're know you preventing an infection. Or if you have a protein that's malfunctioning and you could somehow design a peptide drug that might help that protein function better, um, that's another approach for this technology.
0: Yeah. So just kind of um um using your machinery mechanism, let's just say, you know, we're looking at the coronavirus right now and the machinery or you know, the thing that allows it to open doors into the cells is that spike protein. So yes. if you're throwing these large wrenches into that spike protein and it working, then uh uh you're gonna prevent it from opening the door. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, what's really interesting about this, and, and as I talk to a few different people that are doing it, or you know, listen to it, a few different talks, um, one of the um, uh, one of the things that they talk about a lot is unnatural amino acids. So. Um, I, you know, previously we just mentioned that there's 20 natural amino acids um, and now people are using kind of some different amino acids. What, um, how, how are you doing that? And, and maybe you can describe a little bit about what's significant about your method.
1: Sure, so, um, so in this case, um, our coronavirus uh, peptide inhibitor, peptide is like a small protein Um, we're using uh, mostly D amino acids and that those are the mirror image of what you're referring to as the 20 natural amino acids. So there's the same chemical, same chemistry, but literally the mirror image of that chemistry is referred to as a D amino acid versus an L amino acid. So nature uses L amino acids And um, Mm -hmm. and it's a big mystery as to why it uses L amino acids as opposed to D amino acids, because in, for instance, meteorites, um, you'll find an equal population of L and D amino acids. Yet life, which presumably started um, by sequestering these building blocks from the environment, only took in one versus the other. But when you're doing synthetic protein design, you can use whatever amino acids you want. We're not constrained by the um, machinery that makes proteins. We can chemically make them. Um, so we're not confined in the same way life is um, to using just one type or yeah. just the 20. Um, so, so in, in this, Peptide design for coronavirus, we're using mostly D amino acids. One of the advantages is our bodies don't recognize that as something that they can break down. So it's more likely that this peptide drug will be active in the human body for a longer period of time. One of the problems with peptide drugs is uh, the human body sees a protein it recognizes it as a foreign protein and says uh we need to destroy this this is not our protein or it's some junk floating around or whatever whatever or it's a
0: protein that might have gotten old and they want to recycle it right
1: exactly so there's machinery in in all life all, all living organisms that breaks proteins down but if if we're using a mirror image version they don't actually have the tools that they need to break it down. So it it, it very well may turn out that D amino acid uh, peptide drugs are quite quite a bit more effective in terms of their um, stability in uh, as, as a treatment.
0: Yeah. So essentially, that stability might be important just so that. The drug or whatever you're using, the peptide, which again is just a short protein, would last longer um, yeah. in, the, in the body, and, and you won't have this kind of natural breakdown. So um, I just add- kind of want to add in one metaphor um, that people can do visually at home is when you're looking at um, D versus L, which you know is essentially left versus right. Uh, mm-hmm. you can kind of look at your two hands. So, you know, if you put one hand on top of the other, you'll notice that your thumbs are pointing in opposite directions, but generally they're all put together the same way. So that's essentially what a D versus L amino acid is, right? It's just that life is using the left hand and you're deciding to actually use the right hand now. Yes. Is that accurate?
1: Yep. Yeah, so our our hands, it's a good way to think about it. Our hands are not just a copy of one another. Like you said, if they were a copy, the thumb would be on the same side, but actually our hands are mirror images of one another. So yes, we're using both uh, mirror images of the building blocks for this uh, this approach.
0: Okay, so so essentially, what, what, what's your methodology here? So you are using, um, so you're, you're looking at the spike protein of the virus as your kind of target, what, what we call the target. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you starting from scratch or, you know, are you just trying to design something that would fit onto that? Or are you using some sort of template? Um, what, what's your kind of methodology here?
1: So, um, so the first thing we did was investigate the experimentally determined um, protein structures that exist of the coronavirus bound to the human protein that enables it to enter a cell. And, and what we found is that um, the coronavirus binds to a particular structure of a human protein and it's called an alpha helix. It's like a it's like a rod shape, um, and the coronavirus protein in the initial binding phase, as it's about to enter a human cell, essentially binds to this rod, and this protein rod. And what we've done is we've created a mirror image of that rod, um, and also use. Uh, and and we generated tens of thousands of different sequences computationally that could enable this rod to form and also to bind to the coronavirus in the same way it binds to the human cell protein. Um, so, So essentially what we're doing is making a template of the human rod, inverting the uh, inverting the um, chirality or making it a mirror image
0: mm-hmm. uh, and then
1: finding new uh, sequences that could act in the same way where the virus protein will bind to our peptide instead of the human cell very effectively.
0: Wow, that's that's really, really cool uh, kind of method that and theory that you're using. So um now speaking of kind of binding to this and and um one of the concerns that we have when we are designing some sort of traditional drug something that we call small molecules um which are just you know standard drugs which you know um have certain properties that are necessary for it to get into the cell um but also makes it very sticky and it it kind of binds to a lot of things, which is the main the main reason for a lot of side effects for a lot of these traditional drugs mm-hmm. um, but also because of the size of you know small molecules in the name small
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, viruses um, you know people have made targeted these these viral proteins before in other viruses um, and we do know that if if one of these drugs, uh, there was an example where one of these drugs was used kind of over-the-counter a little bit too much and the virus adapted to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so what type of benefits do you think that this peptide will have? And will it be able to kind of, at least theoretically right now, because you know this is cutting edge stuff, um, will it be able to kind of overcome some of these problems?
1: Yeah, so I think it. I think it will, um, and the primary reason is, like you suggested, basically the size. Um, so we have, in the case of a small molecule, it's roughly equivalent to a single amino acid in size, and for our peptide drug, we have um, a little over thirty amino acids. So our size is literally about 30 times bigger and in, in this particular case the drug doesn't need to enter a cell so we don't have to worry about having to get it through a cell membrane um, we just need it floating around near the surface of cells um, to prevent the coronavirus from entering a cell so um, but we have about 30 times the real estate of a small molecule that we can make very specific for a viral target like coronavirus. And if if the coronavirus was to have one mutation, that could completely, in some cases, disrupt a small molecule, which is about the size of that one mutation in, in chemical terms. Yet, so so the equivalent mutation to overcome our binding surface would be many more than one mutation. So essentially, the generations of the virus would most likely have to be much, many more, to have the same impact of disrupting the binding site that it would have on a small molecule. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can, long story short, is I, I, I do think that with peptide drugs, if done right, they are, Less vulnerable to the mutation of a virus and okay. adapting away from from the drug.
0: Okay, so one of the things that you're looking at doing is you're looking to prevent the virus from entering the cell uh, mm-hmm. by using these peptide drugs and and um, kind of just the way that you're de- you've been describing. So um, now now looking at how drugs are kind of designed and stuff like that there's kind of three different phases here there's preventive there's mild um or asymptomatic kind of drugs um and then there's like really severe drugs where like the severe drugs will be targeting um some sort of um human protein mm-hmm. The ones that are used in preventative or um, mild asymptomatic symptoms and patients. Those are more um, targeting the virus, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know, very very preventive is is vaccines and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. where does your kind of where where do you imagine your um, drug might fit into that scheme, and and what what would be kind of your ideal application of this?
1: yeah so I think um, I think it it definitely um, fits most suitably in the um, in the early onset uh, category where you you were not vaccinated for whatever reason um, maybe in your country there isn't much vaccine available or um, or you for various reasons chose not to get a vaccine. Some, somehow you became exposed to coronavirus and have started to become infected or you think it's likely that you could become infected because you're exposed to someone who was infected. Um, this would be the time that would be most suitable for this inhibitor um, where just as the virus is about to en masse try to enter your cells, you could um, even locally, in the form of like a nasal spray, one would imagine, um, could inhibit viral entry through the nasal passages, possibly in the lung tissue, right at the onset of an infection and prevent the infection from accelerating to the systemic point that everyone's become familiar with where, you know, there's
0: throughout your entire body or something
1: throughout your entire body, or your lung tissue is severely inflammatory and you have breathing issues and high fever and so on and so forth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so this would be this would be a early onset treatment, I think most suitably
0: what do you think that the future of these peptide type drugs might look like because you know right now we have a vaccine and and stuff like that so um by the time your your drug might uh gets to market it may not um i guess be very usable unless you know of course there there's there's a still a large chance that this virus can become endemic uh which then it would be very very helpful um, so Um, I guess, but let's just go past corona. Um, Where do you see this kind of technology going?
1: Well, so one thing that's interesting about this approach is, as we discussed, it's very specific, um, specifically targeted. Um, It's very modular, um, customizable, and flexible. And uh, amino acids are very well understood chemically, Um, so unlike when you're exploring for a new small molecule and maybe even designing a new small molecule, all the pharmacokinetics, like all the effects that happen in the body are completely unknown. Whereas in the case of amino acids, it's not. Peptides are not foreign to any organism um so you're you're sort of using life's own machinery to your advantage um and in that sense it's likely to be safe and effective and customizable so so yeah beyond coronavirus this same approach could be applied to a whole host of viral targets um or any diseases where two proteins come together and you don't want them to um mm-hmm. It would be the exact same approach, um, but with a different target interface and, um, and And one could imagine that you know, as peptide drugs start to become more of a commonplace technology, um, that this is going to have a quick turnover in terms of safety, efficacy, and modularity and specificity so you can you can have a target and you can have a new sequence generated computationally in weeks um you can probably uh you know go through clinical trials at an accelerated pace because it's not some new small molecule that that the human body has never seen before and mm-hmm. so on and so forth so i think the entire approach um is going to become widespread going forward i just think that the pharmaceutical industry right now is not geared up for it. It has a lot of infrastructure in place for small molecules. And there's going to be, you know, it's going to take some time to get what are, what are currently called biologics, you know, peptide drugs into um, a larger share of the pharmaceutical marketplace. But I think inevitably it will happen.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Brought up kind of pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So um, I'm I have two kind of questions that are going to stem from that answer, um, but let's just start with the first one, which is um, cost. So a lot of people are you know really kind of concerned with costs of drugs and stuff like that. So obviously any new technology costs a lot of money. One of the one of the examples that I remember is. Um, uh, the human genome back in the '90s, when it was first sequenced, the entire genome cost upwards of three million dollars. But now, in more recent years, because of the increase of technology, we're trying to get that down to like three thousand dollars a person. I think it's still like maybe in the ten thousand dollars a person. I'll I'll have to double check that. But um, so, do you can you imagine that this might be? Um, when, when pharmaceutical companies kind of scale this up, like what, what would be kind of some overall, um, I guess costs of, of some of these drugs? Like, is it going to be affordable eventually, or is it kind of going to be kind of left in more of the, um, experimental, like, you know, really, really severe diseases?
1: So I think that, um, peptide drugs in general can be scaled up, um, very cost-effective in a very cost-effective way. Um, if they are not what I was talking about before, which is if they're not uh, D-amino de- acids, if the, if you just use nature's twenty amino acids, you can have cells produce uh, proteins, even peptides, on um, mass. You know, pretty cheaply
0: like e coli or or some yeah. sort of bacteria, just really fast,
1: yeah, really fast, really cheap, um, basically, use cells to make your drug, um, use e coli to make your drug, so I think that could be quite cost effective and and there's groups that are doing that um, for peptides of all for for various reasons, and I think in the in this particular case, um we're using. D amino acids, which are much more costly, you can't, uh, you have to chemically synthesize the peptides, um, which is some chemical cost to that, but mostly labor cost. that could be made more efficient and streamlined, especially on a massive scale. Um, However, when using D amino acids, as I mentioned, the stability is likely to be better um than just the natural amino acids. Um, So you could potentially apply a lower dose um, or fewer doses and have Mm. a similar impact. Um, So it depends on exactly the peptide drug, what the costs might be and how how it has to be how, how it has to be used as a treatment. Is it is it locally? Does it have to be uh you know is is it applied locally or is it does it have to be throughout the entire physiology of the person to be effective. Um, but in any case, I think peptide drugs can be scaled up in a pretty cost-effective way. And, and I think this will become more and more cost-effective over time.
0: Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that you were bringing up was, um, kind of, making, modifying and, and and kind of making this what, you know, what we call modular. So um, there's been a, a really big kind of push for in the science community, a little bit less known to the public, but also in the public arena for more individualized medicine. Um, so how, how viable, I guess, would peptide design and peptide drugs be towards, um, you know making individualized medicine say let's you know can we can we target you know e- let's just use cancer so cancer is you know um you need specific mutations in these specific groups but they're not all the same mutations you can have a lot of uh, variability in the individual um can you imagine some sort of scenario where where you know um, we could be using this technology to be designing drugs specifically for cancer or yeah, like individuals?
1: I think, I think, yeah, I think one of the, um, the benefits of this approach um, is you can do, it's well-established, the theoretical methodology for doing protein and peptide design. It's computationally and theoretically been done now going on 30 years. Um, and you know the, the physics and chemistry of peptides, proteins, and amino acids are pretty well understood. Um, the calculations are pretty straightforward at this point. Um, so one could, um, for instance, with our uh, peptide inhibitor design, we actually generated the designs and you know put them through the entire computational theoretical uh, gauntlet in a matter of a month or two um but we could have if we if 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 that was our goal, we could have scaled that up across different sequences, so let's say there were coronavirus variants you know if we wanted to target. Different variants of coronavirus that have point mutations. We could have done that in parallel. Um, so in the same time period we could have designed you know five different coronavirus peptides um, that could be um, used against five different strains of coronavirus or one could have um, for human diseases have their genotype done as you said And probably there's some, you know, under 10 point mutations in the human population for any given disease um, that are really important as it relates to that disease. So you could also imagine doing 10 different peptide drugs that target human proteins with a few, one or two point mutations between each. Um, So it could, I think it is a lot more amenable to Um, full customization to a a human genotype or a viral genotype. um. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I can just bring up my own experience. Um, So one of the papers that that I was recently on was um, looking at a sodium channel. And the sodium channel had specific mutations that caused um, essentially children to have you know heart attacks and, and a lot of them didn't survive very long. Um, one of the drugs you can give them though, for the majority of these mutations was maxillotin. And this is kind of a way to shut down this channel from being overactive because a lot of these mutations make the channel overactive. Now, one of the mutations here in this channel actually makes the channel insensitive to which means that like the channel can't bind it. And mm-hmm. so in order to treat this specific genetic mutation that causes the same problem, you have to use so much, mo- so much maxillatin that kills a patient. So obviously, you know, it's really, really unfortunate when you see these patients because, you know, as of right now, there isn't really a treatment for that specific genetic mutation. And and now whenever they see um, patients with this kind of sodium channel mutation and, and all this other stuff, they have to do genotyping on it before they can even decide whether they treat them or not. Um, so we're already kind of, I think, scaling up towards this individualized idea because we are already genotyping people and we can figure out and we have the structures for all these channels. hmm Um, but you know, like, like you said, it would be very difficult to make small molecules, um, towards this one specific mutation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think largely that is due to, in addition to the chemistry of a small molecule versus a set of amino acids, but just merely the size, um, as we said before uh, a small molecule may or may not have an impact on a mutation that's you know further away right mm-hmm. but a yeah. peptide drug it could you know you could have the peptide drug binding here but also interfacing with the mutation here at the same time
0: yeah yeah i mean that that's a main issue is that um the the drug itself binds uh, it kind of plugs up the hole in the, in this sodium channel. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sorry, um, a channel is just, um, kind of a tunnel that allows sodium to go in and outside the cell, um, mm-hmm. just for, you know, our listeners. So, so that, that plug, you can use it, but none of these mutations are near that tunnel, near that hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so, You know, what's really interesting is this small molecule, um, and what's really difficult to understand is that the small molecule definitely plugs up the hole, but none of these mutations are near where the drug binds. So it's really weird how these mutations will affect the binding of this drug when it's not even near its contact point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fairly common in proteins.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so this peptide is really really interesting, Um, and and so I think we're gonna kind of wrap up here. I kind of want to put in some final thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, um, You know, one of the things that that I really um, have been concerned about is that, um, or I guess one one of the things that's been really interesting to me is is how much public opinion can affect funding. And so, you know, I remember at the very beginning of, uh, you know, SARS-2, which is coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, it's very, very similar to the SARS outbreak in 2002. And I remember looking at the amount of journals that were published in 2002. And it, as soon as the kind of that pandemic ended, um, or that epidemic in China, and uh, before that, uh, you know, ended, essentially papers were just stopped being published on this virus after a year or two, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: because that's when funding ran out. And, you know, I found a bunch of papers that were designing small molecules, designing drugs, um, and actually developing vaccines towards the SARS virus. But you know, public interest kind of lost interest in this virus. So a lot of that funding didn't continue. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that research was dropped and, and some of these like phase two trials were just stopped. Um, and some of these drugs were halted in the theoretical like computational stage where you are. So um, I just want to say that with how exciting this peptide drug Uh, Is and kind of what you're doing, especially with coronavirus. I really hope that the public can stay interested in science and in, you know, peptide design and stuff like that. Um, Because obviously, when scientists kind of think about this stuff, we're thinking about the virus 10 years from now Mm -hmm. or, you know, the diseases and, and stuff like that. So, um, do you kind of have any final comments on, on your research or kind of what, you know, something positive to leave us with as far as what you hope or what you think that? Um...
1: Yeah, so I think that, um, well, in this particular case, I mean, nothing convinces people to put money into basic research to prevent... What happened in two thousand and twenty? Like what happened in two thousand and twenty? But 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 yeah. Normally um, there there is like a spike in interest, and then an an ebb and flow to it, and it can definitely affect funding levels and the ability of science to continue in certain areas. I would say in uh, this particular case, peptide drug technology. The goal is actually broader than a specific drug. It's, I think really what it boils down to is how can we design medicines um, in a way where we're not throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks, um, which is quite costly and time-consuming experimental effort.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what they do with uh, small molecules. They'll take a mutated protein that they know cause a disease and they'll, you know, test out 100,000 different molecules on it.
1: Yeah. So and, I uh, just wanted to say that. Yeah, and, and exactly. And, and that approach is costly. Um, and it's because uh, the theory and the computation um, is not as straightforward and tractable in that case. Um, whereas I think with peptide drugs, it is much more so where you don't, you can actually, I, 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 I think, I mean, the field has been showing over, over the years that you can winnow the number of possibilities from 10,000 to maybe a couple hundred or maybe less um, right at the computational level. And then when you actually go into testing the drug, um, suddenly your costs are much lower and the probability of success is much higher. So I think I think the overall uh, approach is also, you know, going to save massive amounts of resources going forward um, in terms of drug design.
0: Yeah,
1: which I think any research funding that comes into this kind of approach will pay for itself um in in cost savings in the future
0: yeah well that's always the issue right we have to convince people to um um uh, invest in future in future savings right and that's always a a difficult thing to to convince people of because you know there's always pressing problems right now and and i think you know you know you said basic research, but i would I would argue that you're more doing what we call discovery um research, which is much higher risk but much higher reward, and you know a lot of this peptide stuff the reason it's so exciting for me is because it is kind of trying to reinvent and reimagine medicine in general mm-hmm. um, so you know and and what's really funny is there there's a lot of discovery. Um, type research that does peter out and stuff like that but you know some of the biggest industries in the world all came from discovery research Um, you know we're gonna have CRISPR coming out which is just this huge revolutionary thing that was discovery research Mm -hmm. Uh, bacterial how, how bacteria actually transmit genes that was like completely no one cared about that in the 80s until one guy figured it out
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And now that's a multi-trillion-dollar industry. You know, looking at you know having bacteria make you know molecules for you or eat oil and all this other stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, looking at that. So, so I think discovery uh, research is is severely kind of underfunded, and, and we really need to be um, trying to encourage governments to spend a little bit more in that, uh, you know, to also keep our economy and our science field at the forefront, because, you know, I think that's what really made the U.S., you know, economically one of the strongest countries is because um, we did have that investment in discovery medicine that we've kind of been tailoring off in, in the last few decades.
1: hmm Yeah, those are really good points. Yeah. I think um, it is a a tough problem because um, most of the time people want to fix a leaky pipe as opposed to putting the pipes together in a way that are less likely to leak. Um, But I think as we head into the you know, deeper into the information age, it becomes much more efficient to apply technology and the vast amounts of information we have access to um, to implement these more strategic forward-looking approaches um, that I think do generate um a, a lot of cost savings and completely new technologies.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is a great way to leave our audience. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today, Doug. And um, I hope you have a great weekend and some good holidays and and, uh, enjoy hanging out with your family and good luck on your research.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: All right. Thank you.